Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to uh, another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Susie Reiner. Susie, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I mean, so my office is in a basement. I have no natural light. <laughs> you have some amazing natural light coming in behind you. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, I've got huge windows. Yeah, so it must be warm in Kentucky or fairly busy Kentucky right now, whereas in Iowa, it's like, leaves are falling it's getting cold and it's only october and i already feel like winter is here it's just not cool yeah yeah it's definitely warmer here (laughs) for sure but you're a new yorker so you get it you get like that looming doom of yeah yeah just absolutely i thought we just got done with winter but all right Susie. before we dive in today why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners you know about yourself what's your educational background and then what have you done you know in your career professionally Sure. Yeah. So my, I'm really passionate about bringing exercise and sports science principles to the general population, either as a science communicator, a researcher, or within technology. Uh, so I hold my PhD in human and sport performance and my master's in exercise science. And I certified and I volunteer with NSCA and ACSM. So I kind of stretch across the spectrum of exercise physiology, strength conditioning, and behavior change. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. I, I work with a lot of different um, people and I can get myself into a lot of different places in the industry and in the field. I am currently a postdoctoral researcher at University of Kentucky, and I'm split between the Sports Medicine Research Institute and the First Responder Research Laboratory. And I am also the founder of Theory X, which is where I consult fit- with fitness tech and digital health startups. Yeah, you definitely cross a lot of different spectrums there. So what was your graduate work? What did you do in your graduate work? Yeah, so the research I did at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in Utah, Mm. it was very exercise physiology based. Um, We did a lot of high intensity interval training, crossover into behavior and psychological determinants of exercise. So that was a lot of fun. And we also worked with law enforcement officers out in Utah. So again, tactical and exercise phys. But my dissertation itself was in fitness tech. And I was really interested in getting involved in what we were doing with at-home exercise, because this was the time when Peloton was coming up and everybody was buying these devices to use at home. And it was kind of a black box of like, what are the programs? Where are they coming from? What are the outcomes? What are the long-term health outcomes of these products? what's the engagement and like the physical activity engagement over time. And, you know, I was really excited about it. I didn't want it to be, want it, it to become something that people hang their laundry on, you know, over time, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is what so much of at-home exercise has become. So that's where I kind of dove into in my dissertation of understanding the behavior change aspects of virtual fitness. So being able to understand how people are engaging with others on the devices, mm. because that's when sure. it was like the social aspect of that was one of the biggest barriers of in-person exercisers actually engaging in virtual fitness because they say, no, I like going to the gym. I like the social aspect of, of the gym, which is completely valid and, and, and useful and it helps a lot of different people. But then it, there are all these different avenues and environments that are set in virtual fitness of how does that compare? And we mm. have no research in behavioral research in fitness tech. and. The more I learned about it, the more I realized we have very little physiological research in fitness tech either. Yeah. So that's where I got started in the tech space. And that's where it led me into the digital health and the efficacy of connective fitness. Yeah. So what were some of your main findings? Summarize, I guess, what you ended up finding. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, a pretty small study. It, was, it, it happened in the peak of COVID. So I was limited in my data collection, but we did find that that social interaction on the virtual devices, those who were aware of other people in the classes and in the workouts that they were doing, they worked out more overall, uh-huh. and they also worked out harder. So we were able to see a, an increase in physical activity levels and exercise motivation when they, you know, like you can see someone high five or you yeah. can see other people like those leaderboards and everything. Take away any of the competition stuff. 
you know, if you are aware of someone who is taking the class virtually somewhere else with you, you're a little bit more engaged in the workout. For sure. It's so big. I mean, as much as, you know, at home fitness exploded during COVID, I think now it's almost reverting the other way where now people are like, I'm done with that. I'm going in person because I want the social interaction. I want a class. I want to do it with other people who are physically there. But I can definitely see and understand that it, even if you know someone else is doing it with you, even if they're like somewhere else in the world or the country, it definitely has a huge factor to play in motivation and compliance and consistency. Yeah. So after I was done being an athlete, you know, I trained by myself for 10 years. And when I became a dad, you know, it became much harder to be consistent and, and things like that. And yeah. so I did end up going into the CrossFit world and I was like, okay, this feels like a team aspect again. And, mm -hmm. and now I'm like, I don't know how, if, if and how I'll ever go back really to just right. going by myself all, on the, all the time anyway, because mm -hmm. I just love going and doing it with other people and having just a little social aspect, a little social interaction and you know, when you work from home, I'm sure you get this. Sometimes when you get other people, see other people, you're just like, oh my gosh, other people, I'm going to talk yeah. to you. Or if, like, <laughs> I've got a three-year-old and a, and a newborn right now. And so if you don't have conversations with an adult after a while, like, you just need that. So that's very interesting. So as far as tech is concerned, what has, what has been your professional experience thus far with tech? Sure. So I worked with Tonal for a little while in there as they started building up the science team and performance innovation team. And that was an awesome experience. I connected with a lot of different sports science and even marketing and just brilliant researchers. Mm. So that was a really awesome experience. And that led me into consulting with other fitness tech companies. I've worked with a physical therapy, embedded virtual tech company and neuroscience related activity. So it's kind of been very broad, the different types of work that I've had. But the interesting thing is that a lot of them want science and they want evidence behind their product. And it's a really unique opportunity for a scientist and a practitioner to come in and say, okay, how can we show efficacy of mm. your product? How can we show reliability and validity of your product? That's something that I harp on quite a bit. And also, how can we share this information in a truthful uh, way? And that's something that comes up in the fitness industry quite a bit. I mean, we see in, in social media, people say anything and do anything. And the it's kind of bled into this marketing campaign that's around fitness of huge promises of results. And yeah. the role of a scientist is really interesting because obviously we don't like grand, you know, claims. It's something that we... Uh, are absolutely against if they're not true and true is, is and, the, and the grander <laughs> they are the least less likely they are to be true right exactly but we can come in and start saying what what have you collected what data have you collected huh. okay you have these measures over time and that's a huge advantage of these tech companies because they're collecting data on their users every single day that they work out it's massive the amount of data yeah. that they have so that uh -huh. when you start partnering with scientists and practitioners, you start seeing patterns and you can actually run the right statistic to understand the pattern. So, you know, seeing improvements in strength, seeing engagement over time, what, what characteristics or what environments promote that engagement and start to publish this work. That's one thing. If we publish it in a peer reviewed journal, all of these marketing people can, you know, refer yeah. to that. Yeah, it's huge. absolutely. And also do internal research because we can start saying, okay, this is, you know, send me the data, do the analysis, do a white paper, do a write-up, do a case study. And yes, that's not going through rig rigorous review mm -hmm. of a peer review, but it does show some integrity in the product that you have spent the time to analyze its efficacy within a certain population. And then from there, you can start generalizing that to other populations carefully yeah 100 percent. yeah because when you start to get people who are using this technology your n in your sample size has just gotten so big i think 
any researcher at, in, a, in a classical institution would just love to have access to that much data and that many participants and who comply. You don't have to worry about <laughs> compliance. And so it, not only does it help just our understanding, but then it's a, it helps the company too, because they're making sure that the things they're doing are reliable and valid, like you said. So when you go to consult with these companies, is that primarily the, what you are helping them with? What are the issues or what are the problems that they kind of call you in to solve? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it depends on the situation. In some instances, it's exactly that. We have this data. We want to show it's, it, you know, how our product is affecting or impacting someone's behavior. So I'm able to write up a, a white paper or a case study in, in some instances of a specific group. And then they design it and they use it for uh, marketing purposes, mm-hmm. for venture capital, of, you know, sharing the product itself. And it's, you know, we've invested in these, in this evidence, data-driven work. They like to uh, um, use that term. So that's one side of things. Another is if you work with the right companies, they care about the research. And that comes into shape conditioning research, that comes into behavioral research, sports science research, what is currently out there and what are the best practices. I think this is a huge opportunity for practitioners right now who have all of this knowledge. We go to school, we get certified. We know a lot. Um, <laughs> and it's a matter of getting that information to the products so that they can apply mm. it. Mm. So that's something I spend a lot of time doing. I've written a lot of different narrative reviews and best practices within a specific instance. So, you know, what's the minimum dosage of exercise someone needs? I wrote an entire white paper narrative review on that for a company because they were trialing uh, short workouts, shorter workouts. Hmm. So you can kind of explain what are the benefits? What are the pitfalls? Where will you fall short if you only focus on this aspect? But where will you gain more audience if you focus on that aspect? So it's a matter of understanding what their needs are and then being able to truly explain it in a way that to their level, I think that's something that is very important. Some people like higher level research analytic type of reasoning and then other people that you'll work with they just want to be you know plain and simple tell me what the research says tell me how to apply it and i'll do it which is you know great to work with yeah for Um, sure and then the other side of things is science writing and this is something i never anticipated when i was getting you know my phd and working in um research i never anticipated science writing to be so big of a field and there's a lot of excellent journalists out there who are doing great work in this field. And I keep seeing more and more PhD level, master level writers in the field mm-hmm. sharing the information with the general population. And I think yeah. that's been very powerful. I think some people shy away from it because it's not as high level as a scientific writing, as manuscripts of research. But it's just as powerful because you are able to get the information to the everyday person and to the coach, and to the user. So that is definitely a big need in the industry itself. It helps bring eyes to someone's website, to a product's website. Sorry. Um, And uh, you're able to communicate the science in a way that is really important. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies want that. Oh my gosh. I mean, now since I've entered the world of writing, on the book side, mm-hmm. I've also seen a huge surge. And it could totally be because I'm actually looking, right? Huge right. surge in opportunities for people with our background to write, to communicate, because as more tech companies form, as they become more con- you know, concerned with the science and being science-led and science-based and you know, it's another area I was just looking at a new company I came across this morning is telehealth. Like these telehealth companies, you know, they have blogs. All these people are putting out, they want experts to help put out content. And I, I'm not a researcher. I don't particularly like science writing. I would much rather do the other <laughs> side of things. Of I'll read the science and then I'll condense it down into the most actionable takeaways or the what you need to know aspect of it. Okay. And then I'll communicate, I'll relay that. To me, that's way more fun than science writing. And then the other aspect that you mentioned is it 
even on a small scale, you're reaching more people. Um, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but I feel like there, there was like a, an estimated stat of how many people actually read a peer-reviewed published paper. <laughs> it was like five or something like that. And it's just, you know, I know the work that goes into those things and it's a little dis- a little disheartening. And so if we can take these, the, the PhDs that understand it to the level that they understand the nuance of everything. So they're not going to convey it or explain it in a way that's inaccurate, but you can have the skill of being able to, you know, communicate in common language without losing the meaning, man, you're a valuable commodity, very valuable commodity. So yeah. And I found that usually takes longer. That process takes longer for me than actually like writing a manuscript. When I edit manuscripts, I'm like, all right, let's say I, you know, because actually most of my authors are like yourself. They're very well educated. They've done more science writing than anything probably, but maybe they want to write a book for a consumer audience. Mm-hmm. And like when I'm editing, I'm like picking out the jargons and okay, you have to say this is a different way. They won't know what you mean. Or if you say this term, you've got to preface that with an explanation because they won't instantly know what you mean by sagittal plane or some, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Yeah. So yeah, very, very, we'll probably dive into that a little bit later when we talk about opportunities. But let's go back to, you know, what tech is doing, like what opportunities the tech itself is presenting. Because you mentioned connected fitness. There's so many different ways that people can connect virtually from a fitness perspective. And the fitness, these connected fitness companies sports science and sports tech is now available to the average person it's pretty crazy it's pretty cool and what do you see as far as opportunities there for some kind of crossover between what's going on with these more fitness-based companies and the higher level sports science whether that be high level sport maybe even the tactical realm but what Mm -hmm. are some opportunities that you see and where can really both worlds benefit? Sure. So I think the technology is very similar that we use in sports science, elite sport, strength conditioning, and in, in fitness tech, connected fitness. The difference is the goal of the user and probably the training age of the user as well. Mm. Uh, uh-huh. Because, I mean, in sport, we know how to program for a specific sport, for a specific position or event for the you know motor behaviors that we see within uh, an individual athlete and how to adapt those to perform a specific performance outcome that we're looking for mm-hmm. but that becomes much blurrier when we start replicating that for across the entire population and you know st- start thinking about all of the different goals that people have all of the different injuries that people have sustained all of the different conditions that people have all of the preferences that people have because we start looking at engagement and consistency Mm. as a a measure um, of importance because we're trying to improve longevity and and quality of life. And, you know, all of these different aspects change once you start looking at the general population. Plenty of people are still looking for performance outcomes. They want to be faster. They want to run faster. They want to be more powerful. They want to build strength. But to create a product at scale that addresses that, but also the general population of I just want to be healthy and I'm just working out for my health because I know that it's good for me. You know, being able to capture those goals is a challenge. And I think that the technology that we have right now is, you know, I'm thinking about velocity-based training as one of those. Velocity-based training is wildly popular in, in competitive sport and elite sports. We know the threshold of different, you know, sport related outcomes that we're looking for and what attributes we're trying to develop in in certain athletes, we are tracking velocity in connected fitness. Mm -hmm. We we know exactly how fast someone's moving at a weight, a specific weight or load. And that's how a lot of the algorithms are programmed. If you're moving quite quickly through a range of motion, then probably you could lift more. So then they load the person more over time, you know, progressively. That's huge. Like we were Mm -hmm. never able to produce those results in multiple ranges of motion on multiple exercises in the general population. 
Like I know personal trainers who use VBT with their clients. A lot of virtual personal trainers will do that. But to be able to do that for someone who's working by themselves at home. Yeah. And even the concept of progressive overload for the yeah. general population is not very common. Like, no. Yeah. And they, they don't know, know either. They, yeah. They don't necessarily know when to, exactly. to progress something or what, or even what they can handle. You know, because really, yeah. let's yeah. That, so yeah, keep going with that. Keep going with as far as the types of things that people have access to. Yeah. So, so the velocity metrics, are, I think, is something really interesting. I think that there needs some validity and reliability research within at-home metrics. Sure. You know, being able to compare those to to a motion capture systems is really important. And I think some companies have done that. And then, if we start looking at like a heart rate response or auto regulation. We can capture all of this. This is all data that we can automatically capture within a system. How are we using it? How are we telling someone to program their cardiovascular exercise? And understanding if we track cardio, cardiovascular response across a workout, if someone is recovering at a faster rate than they were three weeks ago, how can we make changes within the program itself? But also, how can we tell them that they've improved? And how can we communicate that in a way that they understand and then they can celebrate? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think heart rate, uh, I mean, it's a old school way of, of measuring intensity. Um, but a lot of people wear wearables. A lot of people, if we can get some pe- more people wearing chest uh, straps for, for heart rate, that's an interesting endeavor to measure fitness over time. If they're constantly using it over, you know, all of their workouts. So I am very interested in auto regulation and how, because people are wearing wearables. They wear wearables, they wear whoop, they wear aura, they wear sleep trackers and, you know, they want to know their readiness and they want to know, you know, what they should do when, or yep. maybe they just wear it. And then that maybe that's information that should be, you know, applied. But I think the integration between this subjective well-being, the objective, you know, internal load and external load information, we're collecting all of it across different wearables and across different technologies and a lot of people. How are we able to integrate that into their workouts themselves so that it all becomes one system so that when someone wakes up and they've slept poorly and they feel, you know, stressed and they have all of these different aspects that might impact performance, may impact injury rate, which we have all research for of high internal load will result in, you know, compromised performance, so to speak. We can automatically start adjusting someone's workout. And maybe they have, you know, supplying autonomy so that they can choose to ignite sure. those, those recommendations. Mm-hmm. Yep. But if someone wants a system to know it, know themselves, that's how we do it. We integrate all of the information that they're getting from different resources and give them a recommendation. Mm-hmm. But it's, it comes with a lot of process. We need the experts in place to say, well, no, that response would be normal. That response is way out of line. Don't recommend that. And you know, there's all this different information coming in because research changes, and protocols change and, you know, staying yeah. very up to date within the algorithms that we put into these. It seems like that's going to be maybe one of the only ways to navigate this large scale exercise at home where we can't see someone. We can't mm-hmm. see how they're feeling, see how they're performing, see their movement patterns. Per se, some, in some technology you can in like computer vision which is a whole other aspect of, of technology, but be able to translate all of this information to recommendations, I think is a huge challenge within the industry itself, but it's the way that we can have a personal touch at scale. 100%. Yeah, the auto-regulation aspect is, it's so fascinating because we know that some form of auto-regulation is probably needed in almost all programs unless you're lucky enough to just be living on a training site and do nothing <laughs> but train and eat and sleep. Yeah. I've always had reservations and have always been very, I guess, curiously concerned. How are these things even getting measured? There's so many things. Like, oh, this one device can track your sleep and it can track how deep you sleep and it can track obviously heart rate, but then HRV and then it can track strain. I assume that means like, how hard is this for you? 
this device is telling you what your RPE level is, essentially, right? Yeah. If I understand it correctly. Or now we're getting into things like, correct me if I don't use the right term, like blood oxygenation of sorts. I'm like, how does something on your wrist or on your finger measure what's in your blood? I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. So I guess as much as you can, because each one of these measures could, you could dive into really deep, probably. Are these things accurate and reliable? Do they actually measure the things they say they're measuring by and large? Or do we still have a long way to go here? I think it's a mix of the two. And I love that you're bringing this up because this is what I harp on so much uh, with different companies is we need reliability and validity research and we need it published. And we need it published in peer-reviewed journals that are not predatory journals, that are not you know funded by the company itself, the article themselves. This is so important to know that we are measuring what we want to measure and that an algorithm that's spitting out a, 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 a black box number of, you know, we think this is your level of, I don't want to use a certain term that would put a certain company on, on plus, but like hmm. all of these, almost every single company has a, a number that they're rating your level of either readiness or strength or performance or cardiovascular capacity. It's all relative um, to what whatever the product is. And it definitely helps the individual because people like to have an understanding of how their training is affecting their abilities going, you know, overall. And it gives you some instance. I know some companies will automatically increase that number quite a bit in the first three months because they know the first three months is when people fall off an exercise program. So it's actually a built-in measure of, you know, you're getting better, so keep going kind of thing. But if we are able to validate these measures against, so I'm thinking about relative strength. If we're able to validate a strength measure against what we have published of 1RM, a 3RM, a 5RM, a 10RM, whatever you're using, because maybe a 1RM is not as safe for someone working out at home. If you're able to show research that validates that assessment, against a real assessment that we've done and validated and, re- and and published and we teach and we have in all of these different textbooks. If we're able to show, yes, it's the same assessment, same outcome from home, from in-person. Like I'm thinking of, you You mentioned telehealth. I think a timed up and go test, we have to be able mm. to assess that from home if you're going to do telehealth in a you know performance capacity, functional quality of life capacity. So I think or functional capacity on its own. If we're able to show with laboratory testing and at-home testing that they have the same results or similar results, the you know it's correlated with performance against at-home and in-person timed up and go tests, then we can use that assessment in the future in that technology setting. Right. So they can do a timed up and go at-home. You know that yep. the their outcome, their results are going to be valid. Not all assessments right now go through that type of study. And that's where we fall off because mm. reliability validity research is kind of boring. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, like you're just, exactly. you're just testing people. Yeah. And like these things in academia that we just like know we got to do. And then if you're a company who's not really, that's not part of the process or you don't care about it, you're just like, well, I'm, whatever. I'm just, I'm going to put this out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And. I, I get that. It's an extra step. It's extra time. That's why you hire scientists to just come in and do it. <laughs> but it's. I think that it's really essential so that we know we're testing what we want to test. We are getting consistent results against different populations so that we can yeah. use it for different populations. But I do think that sometimes it's a little bit, I, I approach it with weariness as well, because, you know, what is this number telling me? What is it really? And I think having mm-hmm. transparency is also important on the company's part of saying this is a combination of these factors. Yeah. And having those very tangible things in front of you yeah. is a little bit more yeah. useful. Yeah, 100%. Well, I think let's take sleep as an example. I've never tracked my sleep because I just have zero faith that any sleep tracker is going to have any clue what my quality of sleep is. And some I've looked at it in the past, some will look at or try to estimate how much you move around at night or something like that. And well, if I sleep with someone else in the bed, like my wife, what does that do to it? I mean, yeah. that's got to throw it off, I would think. Are there even like issues with measuring heart rate? And it seems like that should be the simplest thing. 
So if there's issues there, there's, I would think there's issues elsewhere too. Yeah. Yeah. And sleep has the other effect as well of like people get obsessed with their sleep reading and it dictates their activity throughout the day. That's something that I, I stopped wearing a sleep tracker because I was always checking like, how do I sleep? How do I sleep? I get so excited mm-hmm. to look at it. And then, you know, if I didn't sleep well, well, this day is going to be terrible. Like it, uh, it created yeah. a mindset that wasn't there before, which is just crazy to me. And it's like data changes our frame of mind. So also being very careful with how we project that and show it within an app interface of you slept terrible. So then, you know, every conversation you go into that day, you're going to be in a bad mood and, you know, performance, you're going to roll up to the gym terribly. Yep. Yep. The, this connection between psychology and physiology is just always so interesting yeah. to me. For sure. Um, and like with heart rate, you know, we know it's best to wear our chest strength, but we have all of these wearables that are wrist worn. I think heart rate's a little bit more reliable than other measures. I don't like that VO2 max is listed as one of the measures that you can track on Apple Health. And I will put that out there because it's that it bothers me because it's very much misconstrued of like, where is this number coming from? It's coming from outdoor That's a perfect example. I'm like, how the heck are you measuring? I don't know how it could be possible. It's if you go out and walk. So what I understand, I mean, someone might come on and correct me. So please do so. From what I understand is if you go out and you do an outdoor run and outdoor um, walk, it measures your heart rate throughout that workout. And it's basically measuring it as a sub maximal VO2 max. Mm. And that it's not controlled in any way. I don't know how well they did that within the laboratory of like, can we create this measure, you know, six degrees apart and it, it just blows my mind and i also see people are looking at that on tiktok now it's like popular on tiktok it's like mm. look i found my vo2 max and i'm trying to increase it i'm happy that exercise physiology is in the real I'm world sure. now it's becoming yeah. popular it's on trend but it's another role for exercise scientists to come in and say this is what it is and this is how you test it and this is how you approve it and it's we need to be out there on the front lines within the company yeah. and within the public giving that information. So I'm sure you've heard this in your consulting role because I can see someone in this tech company, maybe it is you're like saying you're not measuring VO2 max accurately. It's not a valid measurement. And that I can see someone looking at you and saying, I don't care because getting this person excited and then they want to exercise more And if they improve that number, even though what the number isn't the actual VO2, they still improved. So I don't really need to make this valid. Do you ever get that? Yeah. I I mean, I think I wish I got it more. I think a lot of it is, 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 you know, people are using it, so we don't care. Don't Um, even go to the next step. (laughs) Some do. So that's great. But it depends on what department you're talking to, I guess. Um, I think that's where this behavior science aspect comes in because there's always a balance between the two fields as well of performance metrics and improving performance metrics and making them as accurate as possible. But all of that doesn't matter if someone doesn't engage with a product or someone doesn't engage with an exercise routine. And this is, I think, something that's going to continue to grow in the field of we can't just focus on performance. We have to focus on the person and what they're doing and how they react to things and, and how they feel during a workout. Yeah. This is, I mean, we start seeing it more in sport with subjective measures. You know, you mentioned yep. sleep. You can ask someone how they slept last night. Yeah. And that number is going to give you a whole lot more information over time. So it's just, a, it's a matter of understanding what someone needs physiologically and balancing that out with what someone wants to do. And what Mm -hmm. someone prefers to do and finding ways that people enjoy exercise. Because I always talk about exercise enjoyment and I truly believe that it's a matter of you need to enjoy what you're doing. And you need, if you don't enjoy it, find something else that you enjoy to do. Because that's the only way that you're going to adhere to an exercise program in the long run. 100%. So, you know, to your comment about giving someone what they need and also what they want. And using the data to help with that, you know, back when I was in collegiate strength and conditioning, you know, I really loved the idea and still do love the idea of VBT because it's a natural auto-regulation method. Right. 
But the cool thing about it, and this is another aspect of auto regulation, I don't have to guess on the adaptation anymore. I don't have to guess right. like, how is my athlete adapting? How is my client adapting? You know, and if you're using VBT to determine load on a barbell, well, if you set your velocity range today and the weight is whatever, as long as you stay in that range, you can lift however, whatever you can lift. You don't have to guess on that day, right. but how, like how the readiness of the athlete or have they gotten stronger? It's done for you. And I think that's such a cool aspect of these technologies and what can happen is yeah if we're looking at cardiovascular measures or strength or whatever it may be as a coach i now have real-time data to tell me can i progress this client is my program working and all the, it just creates a whole new world so talk to other professionals now other fitness professionals personal trainers strength and conditioning coaches how I guess, should we be approaching tech, Gen like general recommendations, because it can be very easy to get swept up in it. Right. And like you said, you can become a little obsessed either from a, in a usually starts from a good place. I'm going to do all these things. And because we do all these things, your program is going to be amazing. And you're going to get such amazing results. But then you might get a little tied to it, or you might little get a little obsessed to, with it, whether that's obsessed with your sleep measure or obsessed with the velocity on that day. But how should fitness professionals and other professionals be approaching tech? And what are some considerations they need to be thinking about? That's a great question. I think for the tech does not make your program. And I think you make a good point there. Um, the tech is not your program. It's not. And that's, that's, it's a good thing because we know there's AI that can generate a workout program for you uh, in seconds. And, you know, it's infuriating for a fitness professional because it's like, it's so much more than that. There's so much more to a person than what their workout's going to be. It's a matter of where they came from, where they're going. And I think that technology plays a very unique role in identifying objective data that you might not have had before because there, there's absolutely some doubt in you know rpe like you absolutely use rpe as a scale of understanding intensity but also know that their subjective measures is particularly with beginners or someone who doesn't hasn't used rpe before those might not be as accurate as someone who's used rpe for years and understands higher intensity and lower intensity and what that feels like but now technology starts to understand what's going on within the individual that would mm -hmm. impact their performance that day because you can ask a client, you know, how's your day going? And they're like, it's fine because they've made it to the gym and they put everything behind them. Right. Mm. But they haven't told you that they slept two hours because their babies kept, you know, waking up and waking them up. Um, and they don't want to complain about that yeah. when they came to a positive place. They don't want to tell you that they're really stressed at work and they really actually have to be working on something right now, but they're taking the time out to do their workout session. They're not. They might not be sharing all that information with you. For sure. But if you are able to understand their psychological load, their emotional load through technology, uh -huh. you might not even bring it up in their session. But if you have access to their information, which is up to you and, and the client themselves, you can start seeing, okay, well, this person is feeling a little bit off today. Let me not bring it up, but let me start changing the program a little bit here and there and see how they respond. And on the flip side, you can see that very objectively in VBT because you can, you know, put the load that you would normally put on, see what their speed is looking at, velocity is looking at, and start seeing, oh, well, there is something going on that I didn't know about and they didn't tell me about. And now you have access to information that you didn't have before and you can start adapting the workout in real time, just like the auto regulation is happening in real time. Uh, you can start making those adjustments very automatically. Like you don't even have to tell them that their workout yeah. Maybe tell them when they're above, but maybe not tell them when they're below. Make those changes automatically. And guess what? Yeah. They're going to come out feeling a lot better from that workout because you matched their intensity with what energy they were coming in at that moment. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the major benefits of this auto-regulation. It's not always listening to the recommendation. It's understanding when it's really useful for a client 
when you really should be paying attention because you don't want them to get injured. You don't want them to have a negative experience. You don't want them to get into that heavy domain that would plummet their experience within the workout. So being able to understand how to use technology within that decision-making, I think that's really the main goal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the blending of the tech and the art of coaching and the coach's eye and coach's intuition and client coach dynamic. Exactly. I know that's a lot of coaches harp on, you know, on that as far as the reading is not the end all be all. It's not, it's not written in stone. That's because of this reading this, you must do this. So that's a really good point. And I'm just thinking back when I was a personal trainer, (laughs) you mentioned like all the things that clients come in with half the time they're, they don't really want to be there, but they did it. They showed up. Yeah. And if you start throwing some of this at them of like, well, well, your HRV rating was a little low today. And they'll just look at you and be like, don't talk to me. (laughs) So there's that dynamic too of, you know, when do you bring these things up and how is that going to impact the client? And, you know, there are times where sometimes we just, you know, show up and do it as the best that we can hope for. And the other thing, and this is just more of an observation that is interesting to me. So I've never been at high level sport in that, in the sense that uh, what we consider high level pro Olympic, anything like that, division one, I've never been there. So I've always been fascinated by sports science because I've never had access to it. I've never, as someone who was like writing programs for hundreds of athletes, many of these teams, 35, 40 is like a small team. Then you get into football, that's 110, 120. And I'm writing programs and I'm just like, oh, I wish I had data to, to guide me, you know? So one of my mentors, Josh Hinks, he used to be the head strength coach for the Eagles. And he was so under, under Chip Kelly. They tracked everything, all the mm-hmm. things they did. And I think he actually presented at the CPSDA a few years ago on blood biomarkers and the data they got from blood biomarkers. And I remember him telling me one day, he's like, Corey, you know, when they transition to a new coach, they cut almost all of it out. And he said, compliance is so much better. The athletes are in way better mood. And I would say the data we're getting is impacting our program in a much, much better way. I don't know. I just found that so interesting. And I'm like, he has, he literally had all the bells and whistles and they were tracking everything. But in his estimation, they did not get better results doing that than a few measures that had better compliance and better willingness out of the athletes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it dictates like what's going on in the industry. There's so many different things that you can collect on yourself, you know, blood marker, like Mm. blood work, and you can wear all the different wearables for every different exercise that you do, you know, modality can change. So you change the this, that, and the other. And it it becomes like paralysis by analysis. What do you use? What's most important? And I think coaches can tease that out quite a bit. They can, you know, trial and error, see what works, see what doesn't work with certain individuals, the individual matters. But if a user, like a general population person is collecting all of this information on themselves and then they have to decide if they want to go for a walk or go lift weights in the gym or lift weights at home, you know, it's (laughs) like, what do I do? Like now I have all the different technology modalities. What do I do? And it's Mm -hmm. just, Sometimes too much technology is too much. It's too much information. It's, you know, just go for a walk. It's no big deal. And then other times it's really helpful. So I think it depends on the individual, how much they want to know, how much you want to give them and share with them. And I think that's a conversation that we have a lot with when I consult with companies that are like just developing, like early startups, they show me like their UX and it's like, how much information is too much information? And what, how can you visualize this into a way that we use VBT, but we don't give them a measure. Like generally in sport, we say, you know, feedback is very important for VBT. We know that. But telling someone their speed might be useful for an athlete because they yeah. can sense, like they know their, what, how quickly they move in general lifts. But a general population, like they don't care how many percent, like how quickly they're moving. But maybe it's a measure of what it looks like on the screen. What do they see while they're working out? Yeah. And how is that presented? And you're still using the the VBT 
principles, you're guiding them in a speed, you're guiding them in intent, but or telling them to move as quickly as possible, at least. But then yeah. you're giving them feedback of, oh, you you fell off the ref versus staying on the ref. So you're going slower than you were before. You're going slower than you were. So it's like, how can you balance the information with the UX that actually they actually experience? Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of companies expect me to say, oh, you need more information. Oh, this can be more complicated. You know, it's, I understand like people don't want to be bombarded with a lot of information overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's that balance. For sure. So as we wrap up here, I do want to get your take on the opportunities that are presenting themselves to, you know, academics or people coming up in the field who have the degrees. Because it's exciting. It's because yeah. in addition to, you know, we talked writing earlier. This is another area where I see jobs all the time. It's, and again, these are companies that have started. The people who started the companies, they don't necessarily have the background that, right. that we do, but they want people on board that do. Yeah. And, they, and they're, they're lucrative positions. I saw one a few months ago from Nike that was like, Oh, it's something crazy cool. Mm -hmm. It's something director of coaching science or something like that. Yeah. And, I'm like, and in the job description, they specifically said degree and background in like exercise physiology and biomechanics. Mm -hmm. Then a few bullet points down, what do they have? Communication. Oh, right. okay. So you better know your stuff, but then tell us how we can use it and how we can communicate that to are millions of clients and yeah. have something actionable and something that's meaningful. So what should people be looking for? How can they break in if they wanted to? Maybe even how could they supplement their own education to better prepare them for it? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question because there are so many opportunities that go unnoticed by fitness professionals, strength coaches, sports scientists, and researchers to in the industry and finding ways to creatively find your way. I think for researchers, there's very specific opportunities for funding and for direct and indirect research. And when I say that, there's people will contract scientists to do research for them. And that is sending your data, their data to you, analyzing it, writing up the results on the type of stuff that I'm, I'm working on right now. And those are also in-house positions as well. And that takes a lot of communication, but also all of the skills of a researcher. And then Indirect will be more partnering with a company at the university that you are currently at. So it's a third-party research project. And sometimes it comes with funding. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it comes with a lot of funding. Sometimes it comes with a little bit of funding. So it's, it, it's a matter of how much interest you have in yeah. supporting that product. But those are also very important to get into peer-reviewed journals. And then for writing, we talked about writing science writing, content writing, a lot of it blends into marketing because you will sometimes work with like the operations. Sometimes you work with the science team themselves, the performance team themselves, and then other times you'll interact and interface with marketing. So that's a very different skill set of understanding the value of content writing on the internet and, you know, search engine option optimization and what skills they're Gosh, looking for huge. for that. Yeah, it's huge. And it's very much what companies are going after. And it's yeah. a good way for researchers and for practitioners to get in and give the right information. I think it's like altruistic in a way, but it seems like it's not altruistic because you're like, you know, working. With, I don't want to say marketing's not altruistic, but if you're. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's You don't want to seem like you're like trying to like dupe anybody or. Exactly. Be sleazy with, but at the end of the day, you're sharing information. People have to want to buy your products, right? And, and yeah. you do that with marketing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think I've been lucky to work with companies that are very much trying to build integrity in their product and share information that their users want to know and need to know mm. to support their health. So you can absolutely find those opportunities to work with those companies that have that in mind when they're trying to create their content. Data science is another one. If you are skilled in data analysis and data mm. reporting, there are so many opportunities, more so than performance related. So data science, you can go into, you know, get a data science specialization certificate. The statistics software differs based on who you're working with. So you may right. use like a, an SPSS, an R, 
working with uh, academics but or MATLAB, but then in industry, you're looking at SQL and Python and just different languages. So being able to understand how people communicate with data is important to, sure. to collaborate with different groups. So data science is definitely a big one. Biomechanists are like exploding all over the place. Yeah. I almost wish like I have general understanding. I'm a, I say that I'm a generalist, but I wish when it's a, <laughs> with that thing. Um, yeah. If you are a biomechanist, there are so many opportunities in industry across the board. People are using computer vision. People are creating uh, all these different pathways for biomechanists and data scientists to work together. And then the other side of things is like behavioral science and UX research. This is a growing field. It's There's some turbulence. There's turbulence in all of these things. There's for sure. some unpredictability associated with industry, particularly startups. But behavioral science, if you have done any sort of qualitative research, if you are a personal trainer and you've worked with people and you know motivational interviewing, mm. then you can be a UX researcher. Then you can be a behavioral scientist. Like that's why it's so exciting to see fitness professionals grow into these roles because you are a generalist. You know the physiology, but you also know the behavioral aspects of physical activity. Mm. So it's like an exciting 100%. time. And yeah. then if you're like a fitness professional, like fitness, like all the way you want to be on camera, there's on-camera talent. Honor, yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, there's so many things that you can hopefully follow what it is you want to follow. Like exactly. When I was quote unquote coming up, is here are your two options: personal trainer, strength and conditioning coach. And if you're not a strength and conditioning coach for a football team, you don't count. So, <laughs> and now I'm like, if I like beating people and I like that aspect of strength and conditioning, but I'm not crazy about the world of athletics. I see posts for virtual personal trainers, virtual group fitness instructors yeah. every single day. Mm -hmm. And if you're okay being on camera and maybe you don't even see the people you're talking to or you're leading, yeah, that's kind of who you are and you have that energy, man, there's, there's spots out there for you. Or you're the other way. If you're like, I don't want to see people, I don't want to like really interact, but I, I want to crank out programs. Like I love it. I love it. I love it. There's a role out there, there for you too. Yeah. So awesome stuff, Susie. So where is the best place for people to find you? Sure. So my uh, Instagram is Susie Reiner PhD. You can also find me at that on my LinkedIn. And then my website is theoryxperformance.com. All right. Awesome. Yes. And I will absolutely include all that in the show notes. So Susie, again, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.